So this evening, after our first full day of retreat, I'd like to come back to our retreat theme, which you may or may not know or remember, is titled Rest, Renewal, Resilience, and Release. And I'd like to expand a little on the process that we're pointing to with those four words. So those words are just another way of framing both the method and the purpose of our insight practice and highlighting that it is a process. It's a process of gradual development. So first then is the invitation to rest, which most of us are pretty deeply in need of because of the pressure and the busyness of our everyday lives. And sometimes we're not even aware of just how stressed and burdened and overworked we are until we come on retreat and we're invited into a slower and simpler way of being. So for many people, as you know, it takes a day or two or maybe more to let ourselves fully arrive before we can start to experience some sense of renewal, which is the next word in the four. And so by renewal, just as we usually use that word in English, we mean recuperation or re-energizing, refreshing, rejuvenation, various ways of getting our energy back so that we can strengthen our inner resilience because it's the quality of resilience that gives us the capacity to meet life's inevitable challenges without getting overwhelmed. Then the more resilience we have, the easier it is to stay steady and to see clearly. And that clear seeing or insight is what helps us to understand just how often we're actually contributing to our own unhappiness, our own stress, distress and suffering. And when we can see that clearly, we can also understand how to change that, how to let go of those obstacles. So this letting go is what ex- allows us to experience deeper and deeper levels of release. And the term release here is another word for freedom. And in the context of the Buddha's teachings, this freedom ultimately is the heart and mind that is free from all afflictive states. The heart-mind that knows true happiness and peace. So in a nutshell, that's the overall aim of this retreat, summed up in these four words of rest and renewal and resilience and release. So I just want to acknowledge that It's possible when we hear those first two words of rest and release, they could potentially be misunderstood as an invitation to just try and escape our ordinary lives for a few days and take a kind of a mental holiday time out so that we can feel more refreshed when we eventually go back to our everyday reality. This is often, in the mainstream context, what's meant by retreat. So retreat is a kind of a day spa where we can relax and pamper ourselves. And maybe some of you are wishing that you'd signed up for that kind of retreat instead of this one. (laughs) So 
just by way of encouragement, as you know, that relaxation of a spa retreat, it's nice while it lasts, but it doesn't last, does it? And when it wears off, often pretty quickly, we're no better off than we were before. So just to be clear up front, in this context, the rest and the renewal that we're inviting here, it's not just an end in itself. It has a deeper purpose of strengthening our inner resilience so that we can meet life's challenges and rewards with more balance and ease. So that's the next part of the retreat description, the fine print, so to speak, the resilience and the release. So hopefully you get a sense from that description that there's a transformative aspect to what we're doing here. It's not just a pleasant but temporary experience to chase after. Instead, we're supporting supporting the deepening of insight, of clear seeing. The kind of clear seeing that helps us to make lasting changes in how we live our lives. How we show up in the world for ourselves, for our family and friends, our sangha, the environment. So possibly that might be sounding a little bit ambitious to achieve in just seven days. And so I'd like to say there's no money-back guarantees here. But we want to keep in mind that this is a process. And even though we might have some sense that peace is a good thing, as I'm sure you all know, we can't just tell ourselves, okay, chill out, relax, get quiet, stop being stressed, just relax, 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 will you? Trying to do that just has the opposite effect. It makes us more stressed, less at ease. So instead, what we need to do here is understand what are the conditions that support more ease and what are the conditions that get in the way of that. And so this understanding of conditions, it's not so easy to do when we're in the middle of our everyday lives that are so often so busy and stressful. But here on retreat, we have an opportunity to create conditions, actually co-create conditions that do allow us to see more clearly. So this evening, I wanted to focus on some of those conditions that support insight so that we can really make the most of them for our own benefit and for everyone else's benefit too. And sometimes these specialized conditions, we can refer to them as what I've been calling the retreat container. I mentioned that last night. So the retreat container, it includes things like the schedule, which provides some structure to our practice. And the retreat container includes all of us, the community or the sangha, because of the silent support that we're offering each other. It includes the sense of safety that we create through our commitment to non-harming. And it includes the gift of solitude that we give to each other, which allows us to get to know and befriend ourselves more fully. The retreat container also includes the simplicity that comes from letting go of our usual responsibilities so that we can soften the habit of busyness 
And that helps us to slow down, to slow down and to experience deeper and deeper stillness. And that deepening stillness, likewise, supports deepening samadhi, deepening stability and settling of the mind, without which transformative insight isn't possible. So that's a quick run-through of just some of the inner and outer supports that together make up what we can call the retreat container. And sometimes when I'm talking about this retreat container, I think of the woven flax baskets, the kete that we're familiar with here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So as you know, in Maori culture, the finest of these kete are used to store our treasure, our taonga in. And so metaphorically, I think of each of us as being like a strand of flax, and together we're weaving this container, or kete, to keep our treasure in. And that treasure is the wisdom and the compassion that we're all developing here. So each of us is co-creating this kete, this container, this basket, and it's supported by the rhythm of the retreat schedule. So the schedule gives us a shared structure that we can orient to. It provides some coherence as we sit and walk and work and eat together. And because it's consistent every day, we can relax into that structure and just surrender to whatever comes next rather than getting caught up and thinking, well, what should I do now? Should I do more walking? Or should I do some metta? What's the right practice? We just let go and do what's next on the schedule. And when we're all in sync with that structure, there's a simplicity and a cohesion, and that supports all of us to go deeper in our practice. So because we're all pretty much following the same schedule, Our shared practice can help to strengthen a sense of community or sangha. So sangha in this context, uh, traditionally it means the monastics, but here uh, in the Western insight tradition it's used a bit more broadly to mean all of the people who are following these teachings. So it includes all of us. So this shared practice helps to strengthen a sense of sangha and it might be invisible from the outside because we're not directly interacting with each other but just showing up together for each sitting, each walking it's a powerful form of support. And in my own experience at times it's been easy to take this for granted or even at times to feel irritated by the people around us But as an antidote to that, you might imagine if you were here at Staveley completely by yourself and trying to do seven days of relatively rigorous retreat practice. I don't know about for any of you, but if I was here by myself, I'm guessing that my retreat might turn into one of more of those spa retreats that I was just talking about. (laughs) Because having people around us, it keeps us more accountable And at times, it can inspire us when things are challenging. 
So I like to emphasize that being on retreat is a group practice. It's a shared process. Because maybe more and more these days, dominant mainstream culture puts so much emphasis on individuality. And when we're not talking or we're not interacting with each other directly, it might look from the outside like we're all alone. We're just doing our own thing. We might even like to believe that we are independent and separate. But actually what we do here, how we show up, the energy and the effort that we bring has an effect on all of us. So again, every one of us here is contributing in our own way to this retreat container that we're constructing together. And it's helping to create a field of positive energy. And that field makes it much easier to strengthen all of the beautiful qualities of heart and mind like the generosity that we were exploring last night, and gratitude, and kindness, compassion, clarity, and insight, to name just a few. So we have the support of the schedule, we have the support of each other, of the sangha, and that sense of sangha, of being a community of Dharma practitioners, it in turn is strengthened by our shared commitment to non-harming. And this commitment to non-harming creates an environment of trust and safety. And I mentioned this briefly last night when I invited us to take the five ethical training precepts together. So, as you hopefully remember, we agreed to undertake the precept to train in not killing living beings to not take that which is not freely given, to not misuse our sexual energy, to not speak falsely, and to not take intoxicants that cloud the mind and cause heedlessness. Now, for those of you who've done lots of retreats, it can be easy to take these commitments as a to take them for granted and think of them as you know, just a formula that we do on the opening night of a retreat because that's what's traditional. But if we really look at them, they have a lot more power than that. And a few years ago, I had a, an experience that really helped me to have more respect for what we're doing here because I was able to spend time in an environment where the kind of safety that the precepts create doesn't exist. So I was living in the U.S. at a retreat center, and as some of you know, I volunteered at a nearby prison. So every Sunday for four years, myself and a couple of friends, we would go in and lead a meditation group, and then also offer sutta study classes and workshops and so on to a group of men who... I was pretty inspired by their dedication to overcoming the challenges of some really difficult circumstances. Now, outside of that group, the, in the general prison population, in the going to and from the group and being with the guards, I had a small taste of what it was like to be in an environment where there is not a shared commitment to non-harming, and in some cases the opposite. And I very directly felt the effect of that on myself and on the men in the group, just how negatively it impacts the heart and the mind the psyche, 
and that basic sense of safety and well-being. So we're really fortunate to be here in an environment where all of us are contributing to that sense of safety. And the Buddha talked about it as refuge, taking refuge in Sangha. And I like to emphasize that we're not just taking refuge, we are offering refuge, we're giving refuge through this commitment to non-harming. As I mentioned last night in the discourses, the Buddha spoke often about how ethical conduct is a great gift, a great gift that we give to the world. And it's not a one-way gift. He said we ourselves share in the benefit of that gift, that gift of fearlessness, as he called it. Because when we're not acting unethically, we don't live in fear of being found out or punished blamed or shamed. So this quality of safety comes in different ways from all five of the precepts. But I wanted to give an example just in relation to the first one, the commitment to not killing living beings, the gift of not taking life. And you might have a sense of that even in this environment too. We have the forest reserve then, people's commitment to restoring the bush and bringing the bird life back and so forth. And as I was thinking about that, I was appreciating again how I've I've been able to spend time in a lot of different retreat centers around the world. And many of them are actually wildlife reserves or preserves or sanctuaries in similar ways that are protected by law. And quite often, I don't think it's projection, but you can feel a sense that the animals around know that in some way. And it's a gift itself to be around wild animals that don't have that automatic fear of humans. They're not tame, but they're not running from you. So just a small example in my own experience when I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts a few years ago. There's a walking track that leads to a Buddha in a wildflower meadow, and I was just walking pretty slowly up and down. I heard some rustling in the grass next to me, and I looked down and saw that a pretty big skunk was walking right next to me. And at first I was a little stopped just to check it out because I did not want it to spray me (laughs) because I don't know if you've ever smelt that smell but it is pretty intense and it lasts a long time so I just stood for a moment and watched it and I realized it knew I was there it couldn't because I was couldn't not know because I was very close to it but it was more interested in just snuffling in the wildflowers and getting insects So after a while, I started walking again, and the skunk kept walking, and we just both did walking meditation together, like the full length of the track. And by the end of the track, I just felt so much affection, so much metta for this forest creature that was living and, you could say, practicing alongside us without fear. And even when I was back there in April, two or three times in a month, Uh, when my co-teacher was giving the Dharma talk, she'd be just about to start and I'd see a deer just come right up to the window and just look inside and see who was there. (laughs) And then 
calmly wander away again, <laughs> really close to the glass. So again, that fearlessness being offered and being received. It's not something we want to take for granted because it's what actually helps our nervous systems to begin to unwind, to relax more and more fully so that we can deepen into this process of rest and resilience and renewal and release. So in a similar way, another very powerful component of the safety that we're creating here, and again, one that we can take for granted, is our commitment to the fourth precept, which on retreat is about keeping noble silence. And what makes the silence noble is that it's done in the service of clear seeing, of insight. And as we know, there are different levels to this silence. So the most obvious one is the commitment to not talk to each other or to communicate non-verbally unless it's absolutely necessary. And the commitment to not use our mobile phones or other technology. And this is so that our awareness doesn't get scattered by unnecessary mental activity. And this is not only for our own benefit, but for all of us. Because we are all practicing here together. It has an effect on each other. And I know for myself at times, I thought, well, I'll just send a quick text. It won't harm anybody. And then while I'm sending the text, I just have a quick look at my email. And then I see an email that I absolutely should not have looked at at that time. And it created so much agitation and disturbance. And then I'm running around the place. And anyway... It ripples out, and so to protect ourselves from that possibility, we ask for that renunciation. And the benefit of it is the more we can stop being distracted by all that communication out there, the more clearly we can listen to our inner communication, to our inner dialogue, to all the different ways that we tend to talk to ourselves. And at times it can be quite shocking to hear how we talk to ourselves. And sometimes we can start to notice that not everything we say to ourselves is actually true. It involves all kinds of distortions and judgments and criticisms that at times can be very harsh. So if that's true for you, as it has been for me, you might actually make a stronger commitment to that fourth precept and have it include how are you speaking to you yourself. And then to extend that precept in the positive direction, like I spoke of last night, and to see if we can start moving towards kind speech towards ourselves equally with everyone else. So as we tune into the benefits of the silence, that attunement can highlight an aspect of mindfulness practice that makes it very close to listening. So we can think of sati, of mindfulness, as a form of listening. So not listening just with our ears, but with all of our senses, 
to every aspect of our experience. So we might start with the actual experience of hearing and then extend that same receptivity to every other aspect of experience. So you might experiment going out into the forest or just outside and start with literally listening with the ears, attuning to this amazing natural environment that's all around us, the land and the bush and all the creatures who share it with us. And then we can attune to our own being with that same sensitivity. So we get to know and befriend ourselves with that same kindness and care and compassion. And all of that is made possible by the silence. So Julie spoke about this beautifully last night, that we have this opportunity to acknowledge that deeper level of silence within us. As she said, the silence before thought, silence before the mind moves, that great well of silence, which again, as she said, it allows us to find a deeper communion with all life, one that's much more profound than anything we might come up with with our ordinary chattering sort of cognitive mind. So from that image of silence as a deep well, we might get a sense that this kind of silence is very nourishing and it supports the development of solitude. And solitude is yet another support for this retreat container, yet another profound benefit of being on retreat. Now for some people, especially if you're new to practice, this idea of solitude might sound somewhat challenging because it sometimes is closely associated with loneliness and this can be a really powerful area to explore on retreat what is the difference between loneliness and solitude superficially from the outside they might seem like the same but at least when I've done my own investigations of this when I look at loneliness It's a pretty painful state, and it often brings all kinds of other afflictive emotions with it, such as aversion, or anxiety, or longing, or sadness. And when I've been able to explore these more carefully, what I find is that they're all rooted in some kind of self-referencing, some small sense of me that I'm identified with. Whereas with solitude, it's almost the opposite. There's a sense of acceptance and contentment, even com- even a sense of completeness. That paradoxically, it helps us to feel more connected to other living beings rather than less. So that contentment of solitude comes from an expanded sense of being rather than a contraction into a small sense of me. Having said that, we want to take care not to judge any any loneliness that might come up. It's part of the human condition at times. But we also don't want to assume that being alone automatically is going to put us in contact with the pain of loneliness. And again, this might seem counterintuitive because 
so much of our pleasure in the world, it is socially based. And it's true that we're relational beings. So it's not like we're being told that we should get rid of all that. But if we don't bring wisdom to this aspect of our lives, it can become a kind of dependence. And we can invest a lot of emotional energy in trying to get other people to make us happy, to fill that inner void. And of course there'll be times when we aren't successful, times when people let us down, and then the patterns of loneliness and the pain, distress of all that, can end up strengthened. So one of the powerful opportunities we have on retreat is to deeply befriend ourselves. Because when we can get to know ourselves more fully, we're in a better position to offer that same kindness and compassion to others. We're also in a much better position to more fully receive it from others too. So spending time in solitude helps strengthen a healthy self-knowledge, a healthy self-reliance, and a healthy sense of completeness. So in the Zen tradition, there's a short haiku poem that I think captures this sense of wholeness very beautifully. It's by a female poet, Izumi Shikibu, who apparently lived in the 10th century. Some of you may know it. She says, watching the moon at midnight, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. Very simple. Watching the moon at midnight, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. So in solitude we have the opportunity to know ourselves completely, including the parts that at times might be lonely, and all those other parts that we perhaps don't like and try to disconnect from. So on retreat we have an opportunity to befriend those parts, resting in the simplicity of just our own company we can tend to those Orphans of consciousness, as Ajahn Suchito calls them. So usually in our ordinary lives, when we start to touch those parts that we don't like, we tend to reach for the distraction of our devices, or a book, or a project, or more work, or some kind of substance. Any of those strategies that we usually use to create complexity and to distance ourselves from what's difficult. So here instead, we can orient to simplicity and use it as a resource to strengthen our capacity to be with what's difficult at times, as well as to be more fully with what's beautiful and nourishing. So in the poem I just read, it's the simplicity that gives those few short phrases their power. There's nothing extra there, nothing unnecessary. And we can connect very directly to the essence of what the poet is expressing. And in a similar way, in the Buddha's teachings, he pointed over and over to simplicity as what he referred to as the bliss of renunciation. The bliss 
of renunciation. Now, in English, the word renunciation, I think for most people, has some pretty unpleasant connotations. And it's not, I think for most of us, a word that would normally naturally be associated with bliss. But if we think of renunciation as simplicity, it starts to make more sense. We can surrender into the simplicity of being on retreat. And when we do that, we often experience a level of happiness and freedom that is so much more powerful than meeting our ordinary sense pleasures as we might in the ordinary everyday life. And we start to understand that fulfilling all of our sense desires is not actually the only way to happiness as mainstream society often tries to convince us. In the context of ordinary everyday life, mainstream society, usually we're told that fulfilling our every desire and staying as comfortable as possible all the time, protecting ourselves from even the slightest trace of unpleasant experience, that's what's going to make us happy. Now, of course, it's natural on some level to want to be comfortable, but here on retreat we get to experiment and to find out how much comfort is truly necessary. And we can start to experiment with the simplicity of renunciation. Now, maybe because of our society's underlying Christian heritage, Judeo-Christian heritage, we tend to think of renunciation as being about giving up things that we like. So giving up, say, chocolate or coffee or alcohol. But in the Buddha's understanding, there's a much deeper level of renunciation. Not so much about giving up things, but about letting go of habits, of attitudes, views, beliefs. All of those inner constructs that keep us stuck in the same old way of being. So the American teacher Pema Chodron, who's a nun in the Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist tradition, I think most of you probably know her, she describes this deeper aspect of renunciation in her well-known book, The Places That Scare You. So she says, renunciation does not have to be regarded as negative. I was taught that it has to do with letting go of holding back. What one is actually renouncing is closing down and shutting off from life. You could say that renunciation is the same thing as opening to the teachings of the present moment. Renunciation is realizing that our nostalgia for wanting to stay in a protected, limited, petty world is insane. Once you begin to get the feeling of how big the world is and how vast our potential for experiencing life is, then you really begin to understand renunciation. When we sit in meditation, we feel our breath as it goes out and we have some sense of willingness to just be open to the present moment. Then our minds wander off into all kinds of stories and fabrications and manufactured realities. And we can say to ourselves, it's just thinking. We say that with a lot of gentleness and a lot of precision. 
And every time we're willing to let the story go, every time we're willing to let go at the end of the out-breath, that is fundamental renunciation. Learning to let go of holding on and holding back. So renunciation or relinquishment or voluntary simplicity has a close connection to another aspect of the retreat container that deepens insight, and that's the invitation to slow down, literally, physically slow down. So there's a general principle that the slower you go, the more you'll know. The slower you go, the more you'll know. So just like if we're driving a car, we're zooming along at 90, we're going to miss a lot of detail. But if we gradually slow down to 30 or even 15, whole new dimensions of experience can start to open up to us. Again, though, this can be a challenging practice for many of us. And at first it can bring up some resistance. We're so used to living in our heads, in our intellects, and increasingly in the digital world where everything happens so fast. So it's not surprising that when we come on retreat we find ourselves zooming around and caught sometimes in impatience and restlessness at our slower pace of life here. But again, as we start to get used to it, as our nervous systems adjust to this slower way of being, we can start to more clearly understand how bodily slowing down and calm supports mental slowing down and calm. And it can be very interesting when we're not slowing down to bring a little more investigation to understand why. And in my own experience and also working with students, often what prevents us from slowing down is some kind of identification with a sense of self. So holding on to being someone, wanting to maintain some kind of an identity, perhaps of being special or different, or fear of being the same, fear of being like everyone else. And so how fast we're moving, that can be a pretty interesting feedback mechanism that helps to reveal how strong is the mindfulness, how strong is the samadhi. And if we recognize that sense of pressure or pushing, it can be very helpful just to pause, like we were doing this afternoon. Take a moment to recognize, to investigate what is going on here. We might notice afflictive mental qualities like anxiety, or greed, or anger, or some kind of self-importance. And again, just like we were doing this afternoon, we can practice softening, releasing, relaxing. Maybe orienting to a few moments of metta or self-compassion. And then we can continue on our way, perhaps at a slightly slower pace. We don't want to force this. It's not like it's a goal for everyone to be creeping along in the hyper-slow mode all the time, but just to notice when there is that tendency to rush. And strangely enough, we can even, as the mindfulness becomes more refined, 
notice that rushing when we're sitting absolutely still. I don't know if any of you have noticed when you're really tuned in at times there can be the mind just going, oh, what's, what's next? What's next? What's next? Okay, next, next, next. And there's a kind of leaning forward into the next experience, even if the body is totally still. So now we come to stillness itself, which is the invitation to release that orientation to constant doing, 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 and get more used to just fully being present. So in many of the images of the Buddha that we see, he's sitting, balanced and at ease, and one hand is touching the ground. He's tuned in, you could even say plugged in to that steadiness and stillness of the earth beneath him. And he usually has that really slight smile, which perhaps suggests a quiet enjoyment of that profound stillness. Now maybe for some of us it might be hard to even imagine how that kind of stillness could be pleasant or nourishing. And it can be something of an acquired taste because it is so much not what we're used to in our ordinary everyday lives. So I'd like to come back to Pema Chodron again because she just as a way of uh, describing these different challenges so so brilliantly. So she says, when we meditate, we're creating a situation in which there's a lot of space. That sounds good, but actually it can be unnerving. Because when there's a lot of space, you can see very clearly. It's like you've removed your veils, your shields, your armor, your dark glasses, your earplugs, your nose plug, your layers of mittens and your heavy boots. And finally, you're standing and touching the earth and feeling the sun on your body, feeling its brightness, hearing all the noises without anything to dull the sound. You take off your nose plug and maybe you're going to smell lovely fresh air or maybe you're in the middle of a garbage dump since meditation has this quality of bringing you very close to yourself and your experience, you tend to come up against your edges faster. It's not an edge that wasn't there before, but because things are so simplified and clear, you see it, and you see it vividly and clearly. And whenever you realize that you're at your edge, rather than think, I have made a mistake, you simply acknowledge the present moment and its teaching. You can hear the message and recognize that you're saying no. The instruction then is to soften, to connect with your heart and to engender a basic attitude of generosity and compassion toward yourself. So here again we have the support of generosity, of dana and chaga, to help soften the resistance at those times when we do find ourselves at some kind of an edge or in a challenging place. And later on in the retreat we'll come back to exploring compassion and self-compassion too. 
So stillness is about releasing the pressure of our constant busyness and meeting whatever gets revealed in that spaciousness with kindness and care and compassion. That's exactly the process that we're doing here on this retreat. Gradually allowing our frazzled nervous systems and our bruised hearts, our pressured minds to acclimate to the safety and the silence and the solitude, the simplicity, the slowing down and the stillness. So a few years ago, I read that in the Tibetan tradition, the word that's used for meditation literally means getting used to it. So getting used to it. And that idea of getting used to it, it can be interpreted in many different ways. But in my own practice, when things have been difficult, I found it very helpful to remember this is just getting used to it. Whenever we're in a sense of being in new or maybe unfamiliar territory of some kind, you might remember this invitation of getting used to it. So I want to encourage all of us, including myself, to make the most of these special conditions that we have here, this precious opportunity to be on retreat together. I want to highlight the value of it because when we hear words like refuge or retreat, they can have connotations of withdrawing or running away or escaping. But as many of you know, (laughs) rather than being an escape, it brings us face to face with our challenges and difficulties. So being on retreat is not about escaping the challenges of life. It has a much higher purpose to face into those afflictive mind states and to help them release so that in their place we can cultivate skillful mind states and understand and live more and more fully with ever-deepening ease and freedom. So this is the true refuge that all of the Buddha's teachings are pointing to. And I just wish that may we all be able to use this period of retreat to see clearly so that we can progress from deep rest and renewal to cultivating increasing resilience and deepening, deepening release and freedom. That's the direction that all of us are going in. So thank you for your attention. Let's just take a moment or two of silence to let the words settle. (laughs) 